Hey, this is Dave Ryder from New Spring Church here in beautiful Perth, Western Australia. Really praying that this message is going to help you. If you'd like some more information about our story, just head to newspring.org.au. And um, anger, and if you didn't listen to that last week, I, I encourage you to go back. So here is what Jesus is saying, the undergirding of this. When and if I get angry with a brother or sister, or if I remember that someone has something against me, I go out of my way to reconcile. I stay committed to my marriage and I don't stray. I honour my word and I don't lie. I go beyond for other people even if what they ask me is unreasonable. I love people by treating everyone like a neighbour. I don't lord my possessions in front of people, but I am discreet and humble in my dealings with the poor. I don't lord my relationship over God, uh, with God in front of people by praying loud, fancy prayers, but I am discreet in how I go about that. And I don't lord my fasting or the other sacraments in front of people. I use discretion when I'm doing that. Now that's from the end of the middle of chapter 5 after the Beatitudes to even the start of chapter 6. So when we're looking at these, if the way that you're interpreting them is not undergirded by the maintenance and the restoration of relationship, check that. And the last one, which Dave spoke about a couple of weeks ago, which the key to this section is found in chapter 5, verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. So the questions we need to answer this morning, and the reason why I'm going over this is because to understand who the scribes and the Pharisees are is actually really, really important for what we're talking about this morning. Because Jesus, yet again, isn't talking into something. He's talking against something. He's not teaching new. He's actually restoring old. Okay. So who are the Pharisees and the scribes? What are they doing? And what are they teaching? And what are... And we need to understand those things because, like I said, Jesus is saying certain things in a certain way to mean something to his immediate context that he's referencing. Okay? We can't then transpose that into our current environment and go, none of that matters, because it actually really does. So who were the scribes and the Pharisees and what was their righteousness? So the scribes... Sorry, there's a lump in this carpet and it's bugging me. Um, (laughs) Oh, my gosh. That's why I can't wear a jacket when I preach. I can't handle it on my arms. Okay, so the scribes. I think there might be something psychological in that, but we're not going to analyse that this morning. Who are the scribes? Sorry. They are the teachers, or the were the teachers of the law. Okay? The scribes were what we would consider the modern-day seminary professors today. They are the smartest and most trained people in the theological academy. And the Pharisees were the laymen. They were the ones who committed, who were committed meticulously to following the 613 commandments. So 
the people who Jesus is speaking to or about in this passage are pretty much the religious giants of the day. Now, this is a side note, which actually isn't in my notes. But we often think, I don't know about you, that Jesus was this simple, humble human being and he went about his day and all of that. But Jesus outsmarted and outfoxed the religious giants of his day. He was crazy smart. If you've never thought about that before, consider that. That's just a complete side note. That's not written down here. So what was their righteousness? Okay, so the scribes and the Pharisees, their righteousness was all about the external. Everything was for show. Okay? There was no real interest in purity of heart. The emphasis was on purity of action and how you appear on doing the right things. Clean on the outside, the inside doesn't matter. Jesus accuses them of being whitewashed tombs, dead and defiled. Imagine being accused of that. Man alive. So what were they doing? This is important. So what they were trying to do, which is understandable, they were trying to reduce the challenge of the law. They were trying to make the burden or the yoke of Torah lighter trying to relax the commandments of God so the law's demands were less demanding by restricting them and the law's permissions were more permissive by extending them. So how were they doing that? Like Jesus, sorry, like Dave was talking last week, they boiled down, and this week they boiled down the act of murder and adultery to the act alone. So what they've done is they've actually narrowed their definition of what it means to break the commandment. And then on the other hand, they have extended the permissions. So we'll see today that they extended the permissions about how you divorce someone or why you can divorce someone so wide that it was pretty much anything. And I have a list of them. They're amazing. They're so funny. I was only going to do a couple of them, but I had to put them all in because they're just wicked. So, in a, in a bad, funny, good way. <laughs> so, let me give you the example, okay? Let's just say that this here is the line. This side of the line, I'm all cool. No sin, I'm within the bounds. Now I'm sinning because I've touched the line. So what the scribes and the Pharisees were doing, they were narrowing the demands of the law so they could get as close to the line as possible without sinning. And the way that they did that was to narrow it to the act alone. had nothing to do with the internals. Okay, And so they knew that if I did this, I'm here. But if I don't, I'm here. So that's what they were doing. And we'll get into that a bit more in a minute. Has everyone got that as a picture? Awesome. Okay. Another important thing with the Pharisees um, and the the exceeding righteousness, or a righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees, Jesus was not calling us to beat them at their own game. That's important as well. So they had 613 laws that they had to abide by, at least written ones. They had a whole bunch more in the Mishnah. 
which was the oral tradition. But let's just say, for argument's sake, that they could only follow 400. Jesus isn't calling us to then do 401 because then our righteousness is now greater than the scribes. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. But he's talking about a different level and a different concept of righteousness altogether. Okay? The righteousness required also in 520 is not imputed righteousness or credited righteousness. Let me explain what I mean by that. So when you become a Christian, your status before the Lord, your identity before him changes. And that is given to you by God. So we have a righteousness, those who are saved and who call Christ Lord, we have a righteousness before the Lord that is given to us through the blood of Jesus. That's our status. Matthew here, or Jesus speaking in Matthew here, is not saying simply by the fact that you, you are a Christian and you have the righteousness of God, therefore your righteousness is that greater than the scribes and the Pharisees. Because that then means you don't have to do anything. That still stands, that is still real. But that is not the manner in which Matthew is using the term here. It doesn't work that way. What Matthew is referring to here is to a person's obedience to God's commands. Okay? The conformity of their character. And that is expressed through personal behaviour, their speech, and their attitude. This is not saying, on the other hand, that entrance to the kingdom is a reward from good works. It's not saying that either, that you now have to earn it because that's what Matthew is saying, because he's not saying that either. But the evidence that you are a true disciple of the Lord should be in your life. It should look like those things. But that's a completely different conversation to imputed righteousness. And that is also a completely different conversation to earning the righteousness to get you into heaven. They're not the same thing. Are you you full following me? Awesome. Right. Let's get into the text. I actually thought I was going to be in complete darkness like Dave was last week. So I wore my lightest black because that's all, that's, all, that's all I've got. Okay, I did actually look at my cupboard and went, well, that's <laughs> what I got. So, but at least you can see me, I hope. Okay. You have heard, verse 27, that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, Everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Oh, no, sorry, 28. In his heart. Like I said before, the the Pharisees had narrowed the command down to one external act, which was the physical act of adultery. Jesus is broadening that. Back to where it's supposed to be. The ESV helps us here that says lustful intent. Now, I think that it's important at this point to break down the difference between, because I think some of us can get confused, the difference between attraction, temptation, lust, and the actual physical act. 
because some people think, oh, well, hang on, what's sin, what's not? Thank you, Nathan. So I've got this slide. What is sin? There you go. Attraction, temptation, lust, and behaviour. Now, attraction. You can be attracted to someone, a specific person, a specific gender. You can find someone generally attractive. And that attraction in and of itself isn't sin. You're allowed to be attracted to people. You're allowed to find people attractive. Even same-sex attraction in and of itself is not sin. <laughs> Whose pot am I stirring with saying that? <laughs> Temptation. Now, Temptation or having moments of temptation by being attracted to someone or even being tempted to lust after someone is also not the issue that Jesus is talking about here. Can you leave that slide up for me, please? Thanks, mate. And so if we're looking, I think, at the line, because the Bible speaks very pretty, well, pretty clearly that temptation isn't sin. Jesus was tempted, Matthew chapter 4. And the Bible also promises that God will show us a way out of temptation so that we do not sin. He, there's a delineation between that. So if I'm going to draw a line between what I think or sin is when you're looking at this, I would put it between temptation and lust. I should have made that red. Because red bad. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> Joking. Um, attraction and temptation are not what Jesus is talking about here, and they are not considered sin. So if you are attracted to someone, or if you are tempted by things about submitting that to the Lord, you're not sinning. So if you're like, because uh, I've had conversations with people and it's like, oh, I'm so tempted about this and I feel so bad and it's okay. It happens, you're human. But it's about what you do with that next. That's the important thing. That's what Jesus is talking about. Lust. So it's not the fleeting glance that triggers a sexual thought that then is quickly dismissed. That's not what lust is. So, oh, that person's hot. <laughs> and then it's gone. That's not what lust is. Okay? Lust is characterised by a frenetic desire to consume someone or something. It's not the look. It's the lingering look. It's not the glance, but the sensual stare. It's not the passing thought but the cherished memory. It's to mentally undress someone, the desire to possess someone, or to treat someone or something as an object that is not equally created in God's image. Jesus did not intend for us to hide our eyes and to cover them from beautiful or handsome people. In my studies in this, they were talking about a group of, I think it was a group of Pharisees, that they were called like the bloody heads or something, that they would walk around with blindfolds on so they wouldn't be tempted and they kept knocking into things and falling over and hurting themselves. 
Like, seriously, like, come on. Anyway, he didn't teach that it was wrong to admire someone's appearance. The lustful looks, well, the lustful look locks eyes onto another person and uses them to fuel your own sexual imagination. That's what lust is. And then obviously we have sexual behaviour. Now I can go through the whole bunch of Greek about what the word, you can take that down now, thanks man. Um, what he was using here, because we use adultery, but the word actually should be more, um, is, it is more correctly interpreted as sexual immorality. So he's not only referring to adultery here as sex outside of marriage. Whether practiced by, or he, sorry, he is referring to adultery as sex outside of marriage. But that's whether it's practiced by someone who's married or someone who's not. Jesus, it doesn't only include a man lasting after a woman. It doesn't only include married people. It doesn't only include straight people. Male, female, straight, gay, quite frankly, at this point, it doesn't matter because that's not what Jesus is talking about. Okay? And it's about what's happening in your heart. And the definition of what Jesus is talking about here is if you are having a physical, intimate relationship with someone who is not your husband or wife, that is what he's talking about here. It doesn't matter who that person is or what gender that person is at this point in time. That's not what Jesus is talking about. Is Jesus then making the act of lusting after someone the same as sleeping with them? Because people make that logical leap. Well, not logical, that leap. The argument can go, well, if lusting after someone is the same as sleeping with someone and I've lusted after them, I might as well just go sleep with them because I've sinned anyway. Can you see how people can make that leap? So is that what Jesus is saying? Well, anyone with half a brain in their head would say no. But there are people who think that. What Jesus is saying here is that he's re-establishing what it is to violate the commandment. He's widening the commandment that the Pharisees have narrowed. So this is what he's doing. Here's our line again. And so the, the Pharisees have gone, right, we're narrow, we're narrow, we're narrow, we're narrow, we're narrow. Right, physical act. And what Jesus is doing, he's saying, actually, what's happening here is that we're opening it up because the thing is, the way that we operate, and I say we on purpose, is it's how close can I get to that line? Where's the box that I need to be in that I know that I'm safe? But what Jesus is talking about here is like, actually, you know what? It's not about the line at all. Because when you live in my kingdom... What you're called to do is to reorientate your life and instead of being narrow here right next to the line is to open yourself up and pursue something different. Pursue holiness. Pursue righteousness. 
So the conversation isn't, well, now the line's a bit wider because Jesus is expanding it. What he's actually saying is don't worry about the line because if you follow me, you won't have to worry about it. That's what Jesus is saying. That the act of adultery starts somewhere. And if we let our attraction and temptation run wild, the situation of a heart is corrupted. When we want to consume someone, when we want to possess someone, to have power over them, to fuel our own desires, that is sin. That is what Jesus is talking about. They both break the commandment, but they are not the same thing. Is hating someone and murdering someone the same thing? I think not. I would prefer if that was your intent towards me, that you hate me rather than murder me. (laughs) Jesus expands this a bit further in John chapter 8. It gives us a glimpse of what this looks like. So this is the story of the woman caught in the well. I'm not going to read it. I'm oh, sorry, caught in adultery, not caught in the well. What am I saying? <laughs> <laughs> Awkward. So, what, so we all should know the story that this woman's caught in the act of adultery. They bring her to Jesus and say, well, what do you think? Because our law says that she should be stoned because this is what she's been caught doing. All right? Now, Jesus initially doesn't fasten his attention primarily on the overt act. Nor does he actually fasten his attention on the woman who committed it. He doesn't actually even fasten his attention on the law that they say that she broke. What Jesus fastens his attention on is the Pharisees, those who brought her to his attention in the first place. Jesus knows and he wants his audience to know that the problem of sin is primarily a problem of the fragmented heart. The one without sin is to cast the first stone. Jesus turns their attention away from the overt act of adultery to the deepest recesses of their souls. And that is where the fundamental dimension of the problem of sin must be addressed. Now, That isn't to say that Jesus doesn't care about that. He then goes on with the woman and addresses that with her, the physical act. But he initially focuses to choose, or he chooses to focus on the problem of sin as a problem of the heart, not a problem of the act. And that's where we get our big hammers out with people and we smash them over the head because they're not conforming to what we think they should be conforming to. Work needs to be done with them. But if there's no grace there, then what's the point? Verse 29. If your right eye causes you to stumble... Oh, man, I've got to get my skates on. If your right eye causes you to stumble or causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. Jesus loves this saying. says it a couple of times. Matthew 18, Matthew 19. 
Is he advocating physical self-maiming? Some people think so. This is what they call dramatic speech. Something, obviously, to get our attention. This is speech that is calling us to a ruthless moral self-denial. A taking up of one's cross. Okay? A following of Christ and a rejection of sinful practices so resolutely that we die to them and we put them to death. People were doing this so often that the Council of Nicaea in 325 actually had to pass a law to forbid the practice because people were doing it all the time. One of the most famous um, examples of self-mutilation was a bloke called Oregon, Oregon, Oregon of Alexandria. So he was an extreme ascetic, which meant a extreme denial of self and physical. So he was out in the wilderness just denying himself. I don't know. And an over-literal translation of this and the verse in Matthew 19.12, he castrated himself. Like he lopped his bits off. The argument is that can you still, if you cut both your eyes out, can you still fantasise? If you cut both your hands off, can you still sin with other parts of your body? Of course you can. It's not what Jesus is calling us to do. What he's saying is this. If you fall into sin because of temptation that has come through your eyes or through your hands, the things that you do, or through your feet, which he goes on to talk about in chapter 18, the places that you visit, then cut them off. Don't do it. Don't go there. Don't look. Behave as if you had actually cut out your eyes, cut off your hands, so you cannot partake in those things that are corrupting and lead to sin. Yeah. Practical example. Let's just say you have a subscription to Netflix or Foxtel. My wife doesn't let me pay for TV, so I don't have this problem. <laughs> I pay for KO, though. I signed up for it without her knowing. <laughs> I got a good deal. She's like, are we paying for that? Yes, we are. <laughs> get to be the boss sometimes <laughs> so let's just say there's shows on TV that in and of themselves are not necessarily bad they might be a bit defiling which potentially you shouldn't watch but let's just say you watch something that leads to temptation which leads to lusting which leads to other things in this instance, to gouge out your eyes is to cancel your subscription. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm, that's good, it's not about getting as close to the line as possible. Jesus is talking about a life and a freedom where it's better to forgo some experiences in this life in order to enter the life and the freedom of the kingdom to come. Sin is really serious. Jesus takes sin really seriously. And the thing is, I think most of us, for a bit too long, rely on grace too much. And we make it an excuse for us to not really worry about it because I'm under the grace of God. 
That is true. That is correct. But I think often we abuse it. If one of the most precious things that I have leads me to sin, I have to be willing to get rid of it. That is what Jesus is saying here. We okay? Excellent. Homeward run. Verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, whoever divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. On these two topics, most of the commentators agreed on one thing, that this was a really, really complicated, complex, sensitive topic. This is an abbreviated statement. You cannot develop your doctrine of marriage, divorce and remarriage out of this passage. So if you're using this passage to smash people over the head again, there's a bit of, bit of that going around, this isn't the verse you can use. One commentator said this. This is a complicated topic as biblical experts on this topic struggle to put all of the the passages on marriage and divorce, which is in the entire Bible, together, which make a succinct, encompassing argument for one position or another that doesn't still leave questions or issues. There's pretty much, because they're speaking into so many different situations against so many different situations, there actually isn't the capacity, according to the things that I've been reading, that you can make one succinct passage that say, this encompasses all of this, because there's always an exception. So let's start looking, or let's start by looking again at the cultural situation that Jesus was talking directly into. Now remember that he's talking about righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Oh, I'm going to blow time. I apologise in advance. When it comes to divorce in Jesus' day, there were two main schools of thought. Okay, There were two different rabbis. I'm not going to go there. Too long. But they had what they called was a Mishnah, okay, the oral tradition, which specified numerous grounds for divorce. And here are some. And I was only going to choose one or two, but I had to include most of them because you, you'll find out. Men, if you're married right now and you have a piece of paper, don't write any of these down, because, especially if your wife is here, because she might think that you're trying to get ideas. Okay, a man could divorce his wife if, if she was barren, if she became a deaf mute, if she had epilepsy, tinnitus, warts or leprosy, if she failed to perform certain domestic duties in the home, now, I can feel that. <sighs> right. So the thing is, this is a good one. I like, I like these, these two, right? So if a wife didn't perform all of the domestic duties in the home, it was grounds for divorce, right? But then the wife could also get servants, And the deal was that if she had one servant, then this servant had to do this, just this one thing, and then so she didn't have to do it. Two servants, they had to do these things, and she didn't have to do it, and so on and so forth, up to four or five servants. And if she had four or five servants, that then meant that she didn't have to do anything, and via the Mishnah, the old tradition, she could actually sit down all day and do nothing. 
right? That was the law, oral tradition. However, if her husband considered her lazy, he still had the prerogative to divorce her. <laughs> this is where it gets fun. If she had a head that was wedge-shaped, turnip-shaped, or hammer-shaped. Now, I'm not sure the hammer-shaped, if it's this way or that way, but, you know, okay? Or if her head was otherwise malinformed, such as sunk in or flat at the back. If she had poor posture or thinning hair, if she had no eyebrows, only one eyebrow, or bushy eyebrows, now, I'm not sure if it meant that she had, like, a monobrow or she was just, like, missing the right eyebrow and that was, that was all she had. If she had a pug nose, if she had eyes too high or too low, if she were cross-eyed, had no eyelashes, had eyes of two different colours, had watery eyes, or eyes as big as a calf or small like a goose. <laughs> if her nose was too big or too little her ears were too little or too floppy, if she had an overbite or an underbite, if she had missing teeth, a poor figure, a swollen belly, a protruding navel, oversized or damaged sexual organs, a dark complexion, bony ankles or knees, swollen feet, if she was bow-legged... Now, this is the best. This one is my favourite of all my favourites. If she suffered from swelling of the big toe. <laughs> what does that even mean? So if you've got open clothes, open shoes on at the moment, let's have a look at your big toe. If her heel had protrusions, if her, the sole of her foot was as wide as that of a goose, or if she were ambidextrous, if she broke any, if she broke any rules the husband had made for the household, if she transgressed Jewish custom, if she argued back, if she burnt supper, if she didn't offer enough sex or if he simply found someone who was prettier. So now we're having a laugh because some of those are just ridiculous. Oh, most of them are ridiculous, I'm sorry. <laughs> All of them are ridiculous. <laughs> oh, I'm going to pay for that. Okay. But this gives you an idea of the world that Jesus was speaking into. So when he's actually talking about that, I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife except in a case of sexual immorality, we think that he's adding to the law, that he's giving us more burden. But what he's actually doing is he's narrowing the provision of the Pharisees. He's actually taking the burden away. So we look at that and go, well, that's a law and you can't do this and you must do that and blah, blah, blah. The context is completely off. So he is challenging the common rabbinic interpretation of Deuteronomy 24.1 by identifying frivolous divorce as a heinous sin and defining remarriage after a frivolous divorce as adultery. So I was going to go into Matthew 19 because Matthew 19, he has a more expanded discourse because the Pharisees ask him, 
I'll just say one thing about that because it will actually give that verse some context. Nineteen verse three. Some Pharisees approached him to test him. They asked, "Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any ground?" Now, does that make that statement more context about what exactly they were talking about? Yeah. On any ground, it's like I've got to get my goose out. <laughs> like, but even here, and what Jesus is talking about in chapter five. What he's actually concerned with, the Pharisees were preoccupied with divorce and how to be divorced, how to get divorced. Jesus is preoccupied and concerned with the institution of marriage. Completely different conversation. He refers to marriage as exclusive. They are one flesh. He refers to marriage as permanent. Let no man separate. Okay? His value here... He is that marriage is a permanent thing. Now, Jesus implies in chapter 19, at least anyway, because that, sorry, that, that tells us some more, that the commandment of Moses, verse 19, chapter 7, or verse, verse, chapter 7, verse, sorry, chapter 19, verse 7 and 8, because he gives it, it's like, well, you can, you can divorce under these circumstances. What he's saying, that it's not actually a divine instruction but it's actually a divine concession to human weakness because it wasn't like this from the beginning. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, I'm not going to get bogged down. I don't actually have the time because it's 1028. I'm not going to get bogged down with the definition of what sexual immorality is and what I think it includes or excludes because... Or what's a legitimate reason for divorce, what's not? I, I recognise there are people in the room that have either gone through that, that are going through marital struggles. The important thing to remember here, that this isn't a chief function, well, the chief function of this is not to provide an exhaustive teaching on divorce, but to return the audience that Jesus is addressing to the problem of the heart. And remember, the undergirding of all of these passages is relationship and maintenance of. One commentator wrote this. Jesus' teaching about divorce should not be elevated into a universal law. For what he has to say about it is addressed to the fragmentation at the centre of human existence. It would therefore be a radical mistake to interpret the passage that that are addressed to the Pharisees from a Pharisaical point of view. So what he's he's saying is this. The Pharisees had a belief about what it was to be divorced and married and all that sort of stuff. And Jesus is responding to them by saying what he said. A mistake for us would then to to grab hold of what Jesus said and become Pharisees about that and make that a law to become Pharisees about something that Jesus said that he was arguing against the Pharisees about. Okay. We can't miss the person or the brokenness of humanity for the sake of being on the correct side of the argument. God will deal with that stuff. There needs to be a repentance and all of that sort of stuff, but it's not our job to smash people over the head. Remember, Jesus isn't talking about as getting as close to the line as possible but reorientating our lives to pursuing righteousness, pursuing holiness, and living in freedom. 
That's what Jesus is talking about here. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your words bring life and bring freedom. Heavenly Father, I pray for those in the room this morning who are married, that they're not condemned into a set of laws and behaviours, Father, about this, but they look to their spouse and see them as someone who is a gift, a relationship that is to be nurtured. Father, I pray that you bless marriages in this room this morning. I pray that you bless relationships. Father, I pray for those who are in marital turmoil, who are separated, who are divorced. Heavenly Father, I pray for grace over their lives. Father, I pray that if there's any guilt or shame involved in that with those people, Father, that you wash that away. Heavenly Father, I pray that if there are marriages in this room that are going through turmoil in them at this moment, Father, that you bring about clarity, that you bring about a restoration of relationship. Father, that you teach all of us how to love those around us with the love that we are called to, to show each other grace, to show each other mercy. Father, I thank you for this morning. And I pray that as people walk out of this room, Father, that nothing that I've said this morning adds anything to their guilt or burden. And if there is, Father, I pray, I pray that it falls away. In your mighty name. Amen. Amen. Now, this morning may have brought up stuff for some people. Um, I encourage you to seek someone out to find prayer or counsel if that is what you require. Um, yeah, we don't have Holy Spirit keys this morning, so I can't do that. But have a great morning. Have a great day. Dave is back tonight. Um, have a coffee. Stay inside in the warm. Thank you for this morning. Have a great day.